is brought to us through it. This morning's text comes to us from the gospel according to Luke. It should be a familiar passage to you as it comes out of the actual Christmas story itself from the second chapter of Luke. This is particularly about the shepherds. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, so about a month ago at a desk fundraising event, they were selling these these rings for $25 a piece to support desk, and you punch it. And it lights up like that. And so I put it on my finger. And John Ragsdale walks up and says, I'll give you $100 if you wear it when you preach. (laughs) And it'll go to desk. And I said, how many can I buy? (laughs) You can buy up to 1,000. But since I'd already made one offer to desk, I bought two, and then I bought three, then I bought four, well, it used to light up, it kind of does next to that, I bought five. So John is here with his $500 check to put in the offering plate for desk. Thank you, John. The rules of the game, however, were not agreed upon. He said, if I wore them when I preached, he didn't say I have to wear them the whole time. And so, to defer the light so that you will not be distracted... I will place them gingerly here to be worn at some other time. That might be appropriate. Thank you, John. Thank you, Desk. So have you ever wondered why the angels chose to reveal to the shepherds the first words of God's breaking in on us as a child in the manger? I know it's such a romantic notion for us. Of course, the shepherds. Why not the shepherds? We're used to those young shepherd boys dressed up in burlap, standing there with staffs curved at the top, probably scratching someplace that probably they shouldn't be, or picking their noses looking bored. And romantically, we know that King David was, of course, a shepherd, the 
eighth child of a family, the first seven, and then the eighth doesn't really count. He was a shepherd boy. And, and we know that no Christmas pageant can be complete without the shepherds and their little band of frightened folk being scared to death by the angel announcing the news and then rushing across the stage to the crib and the creche to pay homage to this newborn child. But in almost every, it's like technology. Anytime you ever do something with technology, there's going to be a glitch. In almost every Christmas pageant, there is a glitch. A preacher friend of mine uh, told the story of their church practicing this Christmas pageant for about six times, and it went perfectly. And they decided to put X's down on the stage where they were practicing, and the angels and the shepherds would all stand in the right X, the cross. And the problem is the the last practice was not uh, what rehearsal was not a dress rehearsal, and so. During the actual pageant itself, the angels came out and stood there dressed in their white flowing robes, and then the shepherds came out to follow, but they couldn't find their crosses because the robes were covering it so them, so that resulted in a pushing match of shepherds pushing away the angels, with one of them screaming, those D-A-M in angels have stolen all the crosses. <laughs> which carries a lot more meaning in it than when first heard. The truth is that in Jesus' day, shepherds were nobodies. They were the most despised vocation around. In terms of status, they were somewhere between rattlesnakes and tax collectors, who, unlike Jim Overton, a bow to you, Jim, were all cheats. Rome allowed tax collectors to collect as much money as was needed per head to pay the tax to Rome, but then they could collect as much over that that they could extort, much like the mafia, and that would be their salary. They were hated. Shepherds were hated that much. It didn't used to be true in the Old Testament with the ancestors after Abraham and Jacob and so forth and their sons. Most of them were shepherds. But when the Jewish people made their way to Egypt, they discovered that agriculture was the thing to be in. And Egypt was way ahead of the curve in terms of growing crops, grain especially, and grapes or wine. And you could store those. But when you're a shepherd, you're basically a hunter-gatherer. You just follow the, the flock around and they lead the way, which is exactly why in Egypt shepherds got their bad name. When you're shepherding the flocks through the lands, there are no boundaries. The flock just goes and eats where there's food, trampling all the crops and eating them up. Therefore, shepherds grew to be despised. So by the time of Jesus, shepherds were nobodies. The Mishnah, the Judaism's written record of the oral law, reflects this prejudice, referring to shepherds in belittling terms. One passage describes them as incompetent, 
Another says no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. Remember the first murder in the Bible? It was a farmer who killed a shepherd. Cain killed Abel. For the angel in the story to choose shepherds as the first ones to hear the news of great joy would be like today choosing illegal immigrants camped out in the Arizona desert. The reality of this experience of God's revelation to the despised begs the question, what kind of game is God playing? And I mean game, for life is a game. All the world is a stage, as Shakespeare said, men and women only actors. Since this is Joy Sunday, this may be the most important question of all. What kind of game is God playing, and what kind of game are we playing? Do all of us live our lives in a way that opens us up to joy, or not? What kind of game do we play that enables us to experience this joy? And what kind of game do we play that prevents us from experiencing it? So I've decided there are basically two kinds of games. One would be called finite, the other infinite. A finite game is played for the purpose of winning, an infinite game for the purpose of continuing to play. Finite games are about numbers, are about keeping score. How much do I have? What's my class rank? How far am I from the top? Who's number one? Monopoly is the consummate board finite game. Gambling is the consummate finite money game. Finite games are about me, my place in it, my performance, my results. In finite games, the winners are agreed on. They're the ones who, in the end, have all the toys. Finite games are called to be the golden rule. Those who have the gold make the rules, as they say. They determine who gets to play and who doesn't. In finite games, there are spatial boundaries. There is a playing field. Even in World War II, it was agreed that no one would bomb Paris or Heidelberg. Finite games require an opponent. And in most cases, teammates. Tribalism is a finite game. Politics today, the way it is played, is a tribal finite game to the highest level. There are winners and losers. You're either on my side or you're on the side of, well, you know. One's perspective in playing in a finite game is limited to the finite. It is short-term. It has a definite beginning and, and a playing time and a definite ending time. And the end happens when whoever wins, wins. And a lot of us think that this is the kind of game that we are called to play in life all the time. In fact, everything mostly in our culture, well, 
mostly everything in our culture, is about setting us up to learn how and to equip us to play and win this finite game. Most of the energy that we spend in our lives and in our, and in our psyches is about how can I win this kind of finite game. But what if, what if God doesn't play the finite game as much as God plays the infinite game? The players of the infinite game do not know when their game began, nor do they know when the game ends, for it actually doesn't end. They do not care for the reason that their game is not bounded by time or space. It can be anywhere in time and anywhere in space. Indeed, the only purpose of the infinite game is to prevent it from coming to an end. The purpose is to keep everyone in play. There are no spatial or numerical boundaries. No world is marked with the barriers of infinite play. There is no question of eligibility since anyone who wishes to play in the infinite game is welcome to play in the infinite game. While finite games are externally defined and determine who will or will not be on teams, infinite Games are not determined at all by anything other than the choice of whoever there is that wants to play itself. It is our choice to play it. There are no other barriers. The time of the infinite game is not world time. It's chronos time, God's time. And since each play of an infinite game eliminates all of the boundaries In Christ, there is no more east or west or black or white or male or female or straight or gay. All the boundaries have been eliminated in an infinite game. It opens the game up to players from every horizon. Art is an infinite game. Music is an infinite game. Perfection is never reached. It is infinite. It is something that we strive for only in our imaginations. Every now and then, you come close to it. There is a moment in music. It is, it is Mozart's clarinet concerto in A minor. If you've heard it, you know. It's the, it's the scene in Amadeus when Sali, Salieri hears this clarinet overpiece that's just divine. And at that point... He confesses, I heard the music of true forgiveness filling the theater, conferring on all who sat there perfect absolution. God was singing through this little man to all the world, unstoppable, making my defeat more bitter with every passing bar. I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion I am the patron's saint. Mediocrities everywhere, I absolve you, I absolve you, I absolve you, I absolve you all. Saliare playing the finite game of who is at top, experiencing the infinite game of beauty and wonder that takes his breath away, and then he sees himself for what he is. God plays this game in infinite space where there's awe and wonder. 
beauty, nature's beauty, a sunrise or a sunset, all that makes life really worth living, like relationships and love and hope and faith and joy and peace. Those are the infinite gifts of God's infinite game. And so for those shepherds who had clearly lost the finite game of life, they were confronted with this infinite moment breaking down into them, announcing the joy and discovering that they had won the infinite game of God's love. Do not be afraid, they said, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. It is good news to all the people. Did I say all? His birth, his life, his death is the goodest good news to those who are willing to play an infinite game and the not-so-good news to those who feel like they are stuck in the finite game, but it is good news to them, too, in the end. It is not good news to those who define their identity based on politics or religious self-righteousness, but it is to them in the end. Ironically, later in the end of the story, the followers of Jesus would call him the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Good news indeed of great joy. Even shepherds are back on the team. All people. For God's game is infinite. And God's boundaries are boundaryless. And God's love is unconditional. This is the game we're called to live in. And this is the place where we find true joy. Amen.